Good morning. It's good to be back. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I wanted to point out uh, real quickly um, just a couple of things about Psalm 119 in particular. uh, And and I I want to take this week as an example. Uh, I think it's something that will kind of play into what we're going to see in the third commandment. Um, You'll notice here in Psalm 119, I, I have colored the, um, the end of each sentence. Basically, what you have is you have eight sentences, okay? In the Hebrew, you have eight sentences. These sentences are kind of what they, they call a bicolon. They're split in two parts, part A, part B. And you'll see down below, it's the same thing. Um, but uh, when I broke them out, I highlighted when mine, yours is orange, the first letter of each sentence. And it looks like an up down, upside down staple. You see that? And it's orange. Mm-hmm. And that's the first letter of the first word of each of the eight sentences in this section of Psalm 119. Every section that we've gone through goes through the alphabet in order. And the first word of each sentence of each section begins with the letter of that section. So this section begins with the word or the letter chet. It looks like an upside-down staple. And so there's a literary form and a style to this, okay? It was very purposeful in the way that they did it. And so a couple of other things I want you to notice. Not only does each, the first word of each letter begin, of each word, of each sentence of the eight, begin with the het, but the second half of the, of the, of the, of the colon, um, in most cases, it ends with, a different word used to reference the law. So if I just went through the, this is the ESV translation, and the first sentence it's your words, your promise, your testimonies, your commandments, your law, your righteous rules, your precepts, your statutes. We're reading that as an English translation of the Hebrew word, but there's all different Hebrew words that they've used as well. So not only has he found a way, the writer, the author, found a way to start each sentence with a, with a different word that begins with that letter, but he also found a different way to uh, reference the law with different Hebrew words in each of those bicoa. Another thing you'll notice is that the divine name, Yahweh, is, in the, is the second word of the very first sentence. And in the very last sentence, it's the second word. And it forms like an anchor on both ends. Of the passage, and there's a, <clears throat> so that's a kind of a literary technique that the writers would use. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, <clears throat> each one of these sections that Rev has been um, addressing through Psalm 119, as we go through, it's a similar format. It's eight lines or eight sentences, uh, making up what we call 16 lines or bicola. And then uh, the author's doing that. Does, that. does that make sense? And <clears throat> the more you read into that, you can just, uh, you just see the, the literary, the care that was going into, at least even on the human side, to write this. Um, they reflected on the law. It was a big deal. Um, and so with that in mind, I say, like, there's what? At least there are eight different ways that the writer was able to use Hebrew words and refer to the law. When we come into our passage today, the third commandment, I'm just going to read it real quick. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so let's see, we can see the important literary features here. Um, you should be able to see, <clears throat> I put the, the verbs kind of in green, but shall not take in the very first line, and in the third line, who takes. See the parallelism? The name in the first line, his name in the last line. The Lord your God, the divine name, and in the second line, the Lord. And then in vain in the first line, in the last line, last line in vain. <clears throat> there is a purpose to this. He is, he is um, like I said, Hebrew is very terse. And when they, when they do things, they do it for a reason. There's a purpose. He is highlighting something. He is bringing this to, to bear. And there is parallelism in here in the use of the words. At the word level, there's parallelism. And I think that's, the, that's where, when we first come to this, to this, to this per, uh, passage in particular, where we really need to spend our time is looking at two key words, okay, and, and uh, how, we, how we understand the meaning of those words, and then see how this plays into other things. The first of those words, um, in the Hebrew word there, is just it's nasah, but it means, in essence, to lift up. Here, in the ESV, it's translated to take, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? And so over here, where I said there was, what, eight different words in Psalm 119, um, 17 to, uh, 57 to 64, there was eight different ways he could reference the law. There's a lot of different Hebrew words that he could use to express this meaning. What is he trying to convey? What is, what is he trying to, to say? Um, he chose Nassau. He chose this word, and the ESV translates it as take. What comes to mind when we read that? Anyone, what comes to mind when you guys read this passage, what the, the, the meaning of the word take in this context? What does that mean? You shall not take. Use. Use, right? Right. Well, if you look down below, um, underneath the block, you'll see the, the little Nassau, and there's carrying, uh, you'll see all these, uh, in italics, all these different definitions or ways that this word is used in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are a ton. This word has what they call a wide semantic range. It can be used to express all kinds of meaning. It's a very broad term. Um, and what's interesting is typically like in both Hebrew and Greek, the smaller the word, the wider the meaning can be, like with a preposition, right? How many ways can you use the same little preposition to mean all kinds of things? Well, the big long words typically have a very small, narrow meaning, right? So this word has all kinds of meanings. If you, if you, and this is kind of the danger sometimes of doing word studies. Um, you got to be careful. You can't just look this word up. Well, it means this in this context. You had words have meaning in context. It's the it's the where they are used and how they are used. The context of the passage, the greater context of the passage, and the way it's used is what dictates or determines the meaning of these words. Here. We, we can see lift up is like the second most popular. If you see that little chart, this little chart just kind of shows you how the word has been used in the Old Testament and by in terms of the sense that the word means. You can see to carry is pretty big, then to lift up. And to take is honestly, it's not even on the list. It's way one of these little tiny slivers way over here. It's a very narrow sense in which the word is used. Um... 
The second word I want to look at is um, Shava. Basically, it means in vain. This word, as you can see below, has a very kind of narrow semantic range, right? And so what we're going to look at uh, with, this, with this passage is what do we mean by take? Okay, we obviously see the divine name is here. So that invokes all kinds of thoughts, right? About covenant, about God's special name. He gave them his special name. He gave Moses at the burning bush. He gave Moses and the people his name, his personal name. that He had not even given to the other patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They, he didn't give them his name. He gave Moses his name and the people of Israel his name in the context of the covenant, establishing of the covenant. It's his personal name. Sometimes you'll see it as the tetragrammaton, the, the four letters, yod heh vav heh. You'll see it translated as the Lord in all caps, right? Um, but... Um, so we're going to see these two words. If we flip on over, I'm going to uh, just work through a couple of quick notes, and then I want to kind of just look at how these different commentators have addressed this passage. Each one of them has a slightly different approach, but they, a lot of them hit the same, the same issues. They're seeing the text, they're reading through the text, they're working through the, the literature, and they're, they're commenting on it from a slightly different perspective, and, it, and it's helpful. Um, it can be helpful. Um, so what is this, the meaning? God's name must be honored and revered. This commandment is concerned with the proper reverence for and use of God's name, and it denies that we can be negligent in our attitude towards God's name. So in one sense, this is talking about the careless use, right? The careless use of God's name in any kind of speech. Um, that would include swearing or using his name as a mantra or in some excessive verbiage. Um, you can look at some of the key passages that most of the commentators reference here, Matthew 6, uh, 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, professing the name of Christ and then living in a way that brings dishonor to the name. That's an issue in play here. Um, you see Matthew 15 and Isaiah 29, Ezekiel 33 as, as, uh, as uh, verses. Falsely speaking in God's name. This would include like heresy or false prophecy and misuse of God's name for your own benefit. Um, there are various ways that we can uh, profane God's name. Uh, we can do it through reductionistic... Uh, I thought this is kind of neat the way this guy wrote it. Reductionistic theology. Um, triumphalistic piety. Superficial worship. That's a huge one. Manipulative God talk. Um, this commandment encourages speech and actions that show our wholehearted, sincere devotion to the name of God. Um, another huge thing here that's attached to this verb uh, is the issue of taking oaths. Um, the short answer here is that the taking of oaths is not forbidden in the Old Testament. However, it is very qualified because of some of the abuses that were going on. Uh, you'll see Jesus allowed himself to be placed under oath. Uh, he used emphatic statements. I'm on page four now, the top of page four. Jesus used emphatic statements that went beyond the simple yes or no. Think about John in the book of John. How many times we see, uh, what, I forgot how many times it was, 10 or 12. I got several of the passages listed there. But truly, truly, I say to you, 
Um, Hebrews 6, uh, speaking of oaths among the people. Uh, these are all great passages to read to get more insight into what is, is being um, explained. Let's look at um, Dr. Alice, Oswald T. Alice. He says, The taking of the name of God in vain does, involves not only false but also irreverent, irreverent or trifling use of it. It does not prohibit the taking of an oath in a judicial or religious uh, manner. Um, and then he shows several verses there to consider. So his, his point of emphasis was uh, taking the, the name in vain. Is, he's, he's stressing the in vain side of this, which means irreverent or trifling. Let's look at Michael Heiser, um, is a professor of Old Testament. This is a, a, a podcast that he has. <clears throat> the word take here um, is a Hebrew to saw. It means to bear, like lifting up or to carry, the idea of bearing the name. It's representational. It's going to encompass speech that is disrespectful or makes God or his name of no consequence or the object of contempt. But the, main, the, but the bearing of the name concept here, taking the name, bearing the name, it's really about imaging, okay? It's about representation. It's imaging God. Um, <clears throat> I think some of the ways that, you know, the, the, the Jews and even academics today, when they read the, the Old Testament in Hebrew and they come to the divine name, they'll say, instead of saying, pronouncing, you know, the the four letters Yod Hey Vav instead of saying Yahweh they'll say Hashem the name Hashem or they'll say Adonai they don't even want to pronounce it the 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 vowels are not even there listed with the consonants it's just four consonants they built the fence around it they they didn't want to violate it they didn't want people they didn't even put the vowels in there so it would discourage people from pronouncing the name in fear that they would pronounce it incorrectly there's a reverence for the name. A huge reverence for the name. Um, so he says, uh, in vain can mean falsely. Um, it could be lying. It could be in a worthless way or useless way. Um, something of no consequence, insubstantial. On over to page five. He gives some passages there. He says, we actually have easy ways to illustrate this, how bearing the name is really representational. It's about the Im being made in the image of God as image bearers. They're supposed to be, a, Israel is supposed to be what? Kingdom of priests, a holy people, right? Um, he, he quotes uh, Wenham, Gordon Wenham, which is an old, who's an Old Testament, old Testament um, um, scholar. He says, this commandment is couched in language deliberately chosen to, to permit a wide range of application covering every dimension of the misuse of Yahweh's name. That's what we miss because we don't know the language. For example, I said it has a huge range of meaning, but the way that the verse is crafted, the, the words that are used explicitly itself, provides a wide range of meaning. And it's purposefully vague. Look in the middle. If you look back to the second page, look in the middle. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Even that is kind of vague, right? It doesn't say what, what's going to happen. But there's a reason why they do that. It's very purposeful. Um, we're going to see, we'll see some of that. Um, 
So it's a huge, a, a wide um, semantic range. Let's look down at um, uh, under childs there on page five. Um, this <coughs> commentator says uh, he he talks about the issue of swearing falsely. He's, he mentions the fact that there's a wider semantic range, uh, that the narrower semantic range is swearing falsely by his name. Um, but he, he brings the point, he brings out a point that uh, when you start reading the Old Testament, just pay attention to how many times the name is invoked and in, in what ways. He says on one hand in the Old Testament, people are called, they call on the name. Uh, one called on the name. Uh, I'm at kind of the, towards the bottom of page five. Prophesied in the name blessed the name, praised the name, trusted the name, sought refuge in the name, right? Yet on the other hand, we see texts all throughout the Old Testament where they're forbidden to profane his name, to blaspheme his name, to curse his name, to defile his name, to abuse his name, to swear falsely. So it's, this concept is woven throughout the Old Testament. As we're going to see in the New as well, there's a whole lot more going on here in each of these Ten Commandments, and this one is specifically than what we might on the surface think when we just hear the word take or in vain. Um, Dr. Currid, um, he talks about the, the fact that once again, this is at, you know, this is at the, the beginning of the sentence. They fronted it for emphasis. But he talks about being in vain in terms of being frivolous or insincere or thoughtless. Uh, broad semantic range again, unreal, unsubstantiated, worthless like an idol. This is some of the same verbiage that's used with idols. Um, the verb is pronounced to pronounce or to literally to lift up. It's, a, you know, it's, and it's synonymous with the idea of taking an oath. Um, but the reason this is kind of important is because the Hebrew concept of a name was more than just a label. Like we think, my name is Jeff. It's just a label you identify me with. For, for the Hebrews, it was more it was deeper. The meaning of a name, it represented the nature and the character of the person. So Yahweh is his personal name. And if you'll notice in, the, in this passage, as we've been going through the first two commandments, we get to this third commandment. Interestingly enough, it moves from the first person, God speaking in the first person, to God now speaking in the third person. Why? Why does he change speaking from the first person? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? But here he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He purposely changes from the first to the third person because he invokes the divine name, the divine covenant name. He is bringing that to the front and he's saying, I'm putting this in your face. This, the reality of who I am in my personal in my person, my being, the essence of who I am, in the personal name that I gave to you in this covenant context, that is going to drive this conversation. And in that content, in that, in that context, when he speaks of name, he means everything about himself that he has revealed to them. All of his characteristics, his attributes, everything that is true of God is being summoned up, summoned up in this one little, little, little verse and he's saying that will be treated appropriately with the proper respect, not in some trivial way. Um, <clears throat> this is serious business. God makes it serious. That's why he's very nondescript. And when he says what the punishment would be, it's open to his determination. He'll decide how he wants to 
punish those offenses regarding his name. He takes it serious. Um, <clears throat> so let's look at McKay. Um, I'm on page six. The commandment's about more than just profanity. Uh, name refers to all that the Lord has revealed of himself. It present, um, one of the ways that we uh, people have violated this or do is presenting oneself as loyal to God who has revealed himself and yet attempting to pervert that revelation in, means, in a means of manipulating God. That's pretty bad. That was the essence, though, of, he, of uh, heathen religions. Um, God's name is to be held in reverence and approached only in the way that he has laid it down. The same goes for worship, right? Dr. Mateer, um, he says, uh, this arises, like we just said, from the self-declaration of God to Moses uh, at the burning bush. When he, he says, I am the Lord, he gives him the divine name, his personal covenantal name. Uh, and, and his name is shorthand for all that he has revealed about himself. Um, misuse of the, of the name of the Lord, to take his name in vain, to lift up the name to emptiness. To lift up means to lift up on one's lips. Right? We say to take. But the concept behind the word is to lift up, right? And it's to taste, to lift it up, to, to portray it, to image it, to, to, to proclaim it, right? In any way, whether it's by speech or by action. Um, <clears throat> what they're saying is there's much, much more to this than what we might casually uh, glean from looking at the English translation of the text. Um, talks about loyalties. This is the uh, only one of the four where there's added commentary. We just noticed that. He, uh, he mentions in here that it's frightening that he left this vague on the punishment. Um, let's look at Dr. Stewart. Dr. Stewart says, it's structured. It has a prohibition and a threat of punishment. It's in the third person. And that third person pattern will continue through the rest of the, of the uh, Ten Commandments. He doesn't go back. Um, Uh, well, it, yeah, and then it, and it also, when we get out of, remember, we have the two tables, and when we get out of the first four, the next six, you know, we said the four plus six, um, uh, when we get into the next six, they become more horizontal and less vertical in their nature. So these first four, especially the first three, or, you know, the Sabbath is four, uh, the first three are really in this vertical sense. This is between God and us. And then we see the Sabbath... And then we transition into the more, uh, and they get very, very short. You'll know that the, the, the last things get very, very short, and they transition to more horizontal in their application. And, they're more, and, it's, and those are going to be more typical of what you would find in the culture at large. These first few are very um, central, and they establish really core concepts about the relationship. Um, some of the things that he says in here, uh, one of the, the, the basic core idea behind this commandment is the prohi prohibition of perjury, making false statements, invoking God's name as a guarantor of your honesty. Um, notice that he will not hold guiltless. We, we mentioned that. These, you'll see these guys are covering the same ground, but they're focusing on certain aspects of what, of what is here. Dr. Fesco. Why is God so 
concerned about protecting his name because the name addresses the essence of the person, the being, his being, his character, his nature. And they were called to be image bearers, right? Uh, we are. His eternal nature is in play here. His redemptive acts are in play here, particularly in context of the covenant. Once again, we see his divine nature. We see his creational, uh, God as creator, part of his identity as God as creator and God as redeemer. Creator and redeemer. You're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Psalms. And here, they even, play, even, they even preface that with his, his being, the essence of his being. If we move over on to page 8, you're going to see um, uh, the glory. Since forth, get the word. God's name is connected with his redemptive activity. Yes, the, uh, towards the bottom half of page 8, the connection between the name of God and the name of Christ is clear in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where he quotes Joel 2.32. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, in that original context, who is the Lord when Joel, the prophet Joel, is uh, making this proclamation, Yahweh. But Peter uses this in an ambiguous way, you could say, um, in his in his sermon, and he is referring to who? Christ. Okay, so. <clears throat> I think, I think that to me, that's one of the most fascinating things you can do. You can look through the book of Luke, especially Acts, and the way that the author plays on the, pos- on the, on the, on the ambiguity of the name. He'll start off, he will start off and he'll establish it in Luke. He'll establish the identity of Jesus as not only the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, the Son of David. He's pointing a picture. He gets to, the, he gets to his baptism and, the, and God himself uh, witnesses, this is my son, listen to him. And then he goes off, he goes into the wilderness for the temptation, and immediately into his, um, after the wilderness, immediately into the beginning of his ministry, right? But what you're going to see is the author will use the, na- the, the word Lord, and he will slowly move the, 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 the referent to the name Lord from Yahweh to Jesus. Okay, why? He's able to do this because in Hebrew, there were two ways that they made that they referred to the name Lord. The proper way, Yahweh, the divine name. The second way, Adonai. L- say Lord, small L Lord, let's say. Right? And so there is when you translate it into Greek from Hebrew, right? Unless the, the translators capitalize the letters Lord, you don't know exactly what Hebrew word was behind that. Is it uh, is it Big, you know, Yahweh Lord, or is this, you know, Adonai Lord, right? You don't know, unless it's a quote. And then you can go back to the Old Testament text, and you can say, well, yeah, that's, that's Yahweh, or that's Adonai, right? And so what does he do? He uses that. And so he will, he will, he will, he will slowly, over the course of the book, start to, 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 put Jesus in the spotlight as Lord, and he will say it in ambiguous ways where it's like, well, that obviously is Yahweh. That's obviously Yahweh. This time he uses the Lord. It's like, well, that could be either one. And then eventually you get like thir- into 13 or so, and it's like, no, this is Jesus. Okay, so um, the name is huge. Um, and, it's, and it's something that even the New Testament writers play on. Um, I just wanted to throw a little example out there. 
Um, moving on quickly, page, page nine. God's um, name is identical with his being. They're going to mention the same things. Uh, just a few uh, reflections. This, uh, this author, he says, um, we, violate, we violate this uh, commandment when we flippantly or carelessly use the name of God or Christ. We violate it when our conduct does not honor the name of Christ. If we move on. Um, Riken has a lot of uh, some of the similar things to say. And he makes the note, hey, it's, uh, it's interesting that no one ever gave God his name. He gave his name, right? And he has naming rights. He named man. This goes to the beginning. Name speaks of his essence of his being. It speaks of authority, of rule, of power, right? Um, he mentions uh, down here, uh, I'm going to move real quickly back to, back to 11 and we'll close up. Um, page 11, uh, like the second paragraph, we're not to use uh, his name in vain or empty way, carelessly, thoughtlessly, flippantly. His name is holy and sacred. Um, so uh, real quick on that concept. We often think of the issue of common uh, or of clean and unclean common and holy right there is think of it this way there is clean there is clean or there is unclean and there is clean right but underneath clean okay there is common and there is holy it's one thing to be unclean it's another to be clean but israel okay was taken out of the world right and they were to become clean. He's giving them the law. He's giving them the means by which. But once they were clean, they were called not to be common, but to be holy, set apart, increasingly more and more unto God, right? Devoted more and more unto him. So they are called out of the world to be made clean in order that they might become holy, more and more committed unto him right set apart for his purposes in the world to be a blessing to all the nations that's why they are in a representational role as image bearers and as both individually and corporately that's why this law is so important not only does it speak of who god's identity is but it also speaks to them conversely of what their calling and their purpose is as image bearers and as a nation um so you can, you can read through these um, comments, but uh, there were so many um, different ways. Even on page 12, you'll, you'll, he speaks about mild oaths, where we'll use little terms like OMG or, you know, uh, different things. Those are mild oaths. Um, uh, sometimes when we endorse, uh, when we use God to endorse our political views, it becomes like a party mascot. Or when we use them to prop up our position so that others will... Um, you know, other people will have to do what we say, or when we confuse what we want with what God wants, we take his name in vain. Um, we do it when we say little things like, praise the Lord, in a cliche type of way, right? When we put little bumper stickers or tell off-color jokes, or um, I think the, the, one, the one thing he says here, being careless in worship. You're taking his name in vain. You're not representing God with the reverence and the respect 
and the glory and the majesty that he is due. It's uh, what one writer calls the trivialization of God. Um, and I'll leave these last few in here for you, but um, Philippians 2.9, Hebrews 1, just read that. The Son who became Son. What does he say? He gave him, the Father gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, right, every knee shall bow. So, <clears throat> name is huge. And there's a lot going on in this text, like all these others, um, uh, more than we can address today, but hopefully it gives you, you can read back over the material and you get more out of it. But, sorry, we've got to close this thing down. But I appreciate you all so much for being here. Um, so let me close this out real quick in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this uh, privilege that we have to meet here um, together as a group of your people uh, to study your word. Um, and uh, we just pray that um, you would place your word deep in our hearts. Help us to uh, live into it and reflect it, reflect the proper glory and honor and respect that's due your name. We love you. We thank you for all things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.